welcome back to It's Pretty Personal, a podcast all about sharing South Asian stories. How are you all doing today? Firstly, to my UK people, how are we feeling after Boris's announcement yesterday on the Road to Freedom roadmap? I did speak to a few of you guys over Instagram, but basically the gist of it is that slowly, slowly things are now going to be opening up. So kids can go back to school from the 8th of March, non-essential retail, hairdressers and the eyebrow lady, thank God, can be opened by the 12th of April and hopefully by the 21st of June, there'll be no more lockdown restrictions. Listen, I just don't want another lockdown birthday, man. Now today's episode is something I'm excited, but also nervous to share with you guys. And as the title suggests, we're talking about pregnancy loss, which unfortunately is so common, but not spoken about. And I don't want to limit this to just the South Asian community because I feel like it's not spoken about in any community that openly. Did you know that a miscarriage happens in estimated one in four pregnancies? That's 25%. And about one in 100 women in the UK experience recurrent miscarriages. That's three or more miscarriages in a row. I'm so honoured that I'm able to share Mrs. Patel's story. She's a South Asian woman born in the States and now living in the UK. During her pregnancy journey, she had two atopic pregnancies, two miscarriages and two rounds of IVF. But the story does have a happy ending because she welcomed baby Patel in 2020. Honestly, I didn't even know what a topic pregnancy was until I recorded this episode. So if anyone else is like me and doesn't know, an atopic pregnancy is when a fertilized egg starts to grow somewhere other than the normal lining of the womb. So they're sometimes called tubal pregnancies or tubal atopics. In very rare cases, the pregnancy can also develop somewhere else. For example, where the tube meets the uterus or in the cervix. And if it's not untreated, the tube may rupture, which means that it needs to be dealt with urgently. It's estimated that there are around 12,000 cases of atopic pregnancies a year in the UK. And it can be really heartbreaking, but there is support out there. In the episode description below, I've left some contact information for some charities that specialize in pregnancy loss. Please direct people who you know are going through this or have gone through this that need support. Also, I'm going to link Mrs. Patel's page in the episode description too, because honestly, her page is so awesome and she's so open about her journey. Or if you're someone like me that just wants to know more about this topic, I've listed some academic papers, videos and articles if you want to do your own further research. Yes, it's post-university and sometimes I still do read academic papers. Although, did anyone else do this thing when they were at uni and had like a bunch of extra reading to do? They would only read at the beginning and the end of the paper and that was it. I try not to do that anymore, but like at uni, I did that quite a bit. And also a quick reminder to follow me on socials at Pretty Personal on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. And if you're new, then please feel free to subscribe, rate this podcast five stars and leave it a review. So let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode. So today I have a guest who goes by Mrs. Patel. She is a HR professional in London. In 2016, she and her husband decided to try for a baby. After an ectopic pregnancy, a miscarriage, and a failed round of IVF, another miscarriage, and a second atopic pregnancy, they finally welcomed baby Patel in 2020 after a successful round of IVF. She shares her musings of motherhood, infertility, pregnancy loss, mental health, and IVF on her Instagram page, Journey to Baby Patel, which I'm going to link down below. Mrs. Patel, hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. I honestly, I'm so glad that I was able to get in contact with you and hear about your story because I think I saw you over Instagram and I had never heard about stuff like this before. And I was literally like, oh my God, that was genuinely my reaction. <laughs> like, I can't even lie. Yeah, I mean, you definitely won't hear a lot about it from Asians. 
I'm North Indian, Gujarati. I had nowhere to go and no one to talk to. And Instagram became sort of the vessel for everything. And I try and be as honest as you'll see me be on my page because there was nobody being honest that looked like me, that had the same traditions and culture as me. I didn't have a touchstone. It was just me. And it was the only place I could sort of put it all out there. I'm so glad you did, honestly, because I think a lot of people would benefit from your page and hearing your story as well. I just wanted to know, how are you this week? How have you been? You know, it's been a colourful week. But yeah, I think I'm okay. How are you? I'm good, actually. I feel like the week's only started. I actually started journaling a lot. So I've been like having to-do lists and like, you know, that satisfaction of ticking stuff off your to-do list. Like, I've been doing that quite a lot this week. So one thing that I always do at the start of an episode when I have a guest is that I do like an icebreaker for people to get to know you a little bit better. So the first question is, complete the sentence, I'm really happy when? I'm watching my husband and daughter play together. Oh, so cute. The next one is, what's one thing that you're really good at? I would say I'm an empath. So people usually come and chat to me about how they're doing. I think I'm a, I'm a good listener. What is one thing that you really value? My health. And finally, what is one thing that you want to accomplish by 2021? Um, I think getting myself, uh, because postnatally I've had some postpartum depression and anxiety, which is linked. I think if you have a complicated history uh, road to becoming a parent like I have, you know, you're at a higher risk of having those things. So really getting myself into a better place for my own sake, not because I'm a mom or because I'm a wife, but because, you know, I need that for myself. So I think working on me. And talking about your journey, so do you want to start off with your journey? Yeah, well, (laughs) I feel like it's something I can talk about for a very long time. But to summarize, uh, my husband and I have been together for a long time. Obviously, I'm not from the UK, I'm from the States, but we always, always wanted to be parents, always. It's something that we, I think like every other couple who does want to grow their family with children, I think we never really thought about it being a problem and that it would just happen. And so in 2016, I think we decided to try. And very quickly, I did fall pregnant, which was great news. But um, actually, on that day that I found out I was pregnant, I was extremely upset because I thought that I wasn't. And I said to my doctor, I've had enough. You know, can you please refer us for some testing? And she said, all the patients that I have, when they are finally at this point, they always end up being pregnant. And I had some spotting. So I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant, you know, a huge deal in that first pregnancy. I knew something wasn't right. I was in quite a bit of pain. I wasn't very well. And I had to really push for some care. And I think about six days after I found out I was pregnant, uh, we found out that I was having an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy which is not in the womb. It was in my fallopian tube. And that's not a pregnancy that can grow and blossom into a baby. It's fatal. It can cause a lot of really dangerous repercussions for the mother, and those pregnancies unfortunately don't continue. So I had to have emergency surgery to remove my fallopian tube. Pregnancy obviously came to a close. Yeah, and that was my first pregnancy loss. And in the years that followed, I had um, another miscarriage. We've had tons of investigations into our fertility. Uh, both mine and my husband's. And I think I became, I always tell doctors now that I'm a professional patient. I think I've seen almost every doctor you can see. I had a round of IVF that didn't work out. After that round of IVF, which, you know, really knocked me for a loop, I had another pregnancy loss. 
and then a fourth pregnancy loss, which was an ectopic pregnancy again. And I lost my remaining fallopian tube. After that, gosh, it's kind of hard to reloop these things if I'm honest. But after that, the following year, we did one more round of IVF that was on the NHS. Then the rest of the story is we conceived and my daughter is here as a result. But a very, very difficult journey physically, mentally, emotionally. Honestly, it's such a journey. And I think people don't realize how important like your fallopian tube is. Like for people that don't know, your fallopian tubes is what connects your ovaries to the womb. So then when you do have an atopic pregnancy, that means that the egg just hasn't been released into the womb. It's just stuck there. Is that correct? Yeah, well, the embryo. So the embryo is there. Think of it as a highway. So your embryo is going down the fallopian tube to get to the uterus. Well, mine just didn't. And that happened to me twice. So first of all, they're rare. I had never heard of them before. And it was a complete shock to the system because I remember when I had the first and I was being discharged from the hospital. First of all, I was broken in every way you could be. And I remember saying to them, what do I need to know about my fertility? Or is there anything I need to keep in mind? And they just said to me, don't lift anything over 10 pounds and just check with your GP about your stitches. Nobody talked to me about what happened to my body after that, how I would feel mentally. There was no support because for me, this was a pregnancy loss. And I think for a lot of the people who are in charge of my care, it was, you know, a bunch of cells. And they're looking at it from a surgical point of view. But for me, it was like the end of a dream. And I think completely soul shattering. It's a lot. But yeah, women, most women don't know anything about their fallopian tubes. They don't know a lot about their own fertility, especially South Asian women. It's something that our mothers don't talk to us about. Our community doesn't talk about. And you just keep quiet about. So I try and do the opposite. I'm so, so, so glad you are because it's very true. It's the fact that a lot of times in South Asian culture, it's that whole pressure when you are married, that when you're going to have a child. No one tells you anything about fertility or infertility or the fact that if you can't have a baby, it's not always a woman's fault. It can also be the man's fault. There's so much stuff that we're not taught about in our own bodies because the whole idea of women's reproductive health is seen as taboo. And I wanted to ask like, For you growing up, was that definitely a thing for you? And how did you end up telling like your parents or your family that you did have a topic pregnancy? So no one ever talked to me about having a family. I think when you're in school, you learn about not having one. Stay away from boys. Yeah. And as a South Asian, I never got that education from my parents about any sexual health, but also about infertility and a woman's own fertility. I mean, you learn things in school like mark off your period on your calendar with a red pen. I remember learning that in school, showing off my age for any listeners, but basically to learn about when your period would come the next month. In terms of how we sort of share this information, many women who experience an ectopic pregnancy have to undergo an emergency operation and it can be life-threatening. And in my case, From the time that we found out that I was having a scan, it became very quick, quickly determined that we needed to do an operation that day immediately because the fallopian tube can rupture. So I was actually bleeding internally. And that had been quite a bit of the pain that I had been experiencing. Women can die from an ectopic pregnancy. So at the time, my in-laws were overseas. My parents are abroad. We had called them to let them know. And obviously, they were shocked and heartbroken but also didn't know much about it themselves. So they just knew I was having surgery, that they weren't here, and that I had a pregnancy loss. Mm. And how was that like on your mental health? Obviously, losing a baby can be so traumatic and it's devastating. How was your mental health after that operation or the surgery? 
I'll be honest, it was brutal. I remember, you know, being wheeled away from my husband to go and have the operation and just thinking I can die in this operation and I'm never going to see him again. And it was such a traumatic experience. I ended up not leaving the house really for three months. I really struggled a lot emotionally and mentally because there was no support. I remember asking my GP, who has now left the practice, for help. And he just said I was hysterical on the phone and I needed to get a hold of myself. And it made me feel like there's literally no one I can ask for help. Actually, the Ectopic Pregnancy Trust was a great charity. And my dad and brother looked them up from the States and said, why don't you give them a call? And they really helped me through the first Ectopic and the last. They were great. They were a great resource. But every pregnancy loss was very difficult. Yeah. So then after you went through your first pregnancy loss, you then decided to continue having for a baby. Was that quite difficult because of the fear that the same thing might happen again? I think the fear was there. It took a year to conceive again. And we went through tons of investigations, seeing doctors, trying to figure out what was wrong, trying to get second opinions. So once I was ready, and it took me a while, one, you have to really let your body recover from that operation. It was an abdominal keyhole surgery. It took me some time. Yeah, it definitely was soul shattering, though, I won't lie. Mm. Did you feel like lonely? Because I know you said that you felt like as though you were like the only person in the world going through this. And obviously it's so rare in general. How was your support system around you? I mean, my husband was great, but also he was grieving. And today on the other side, I can see that, you know, I was so deep and so far gone in how I was feeling. I wasn't thinking about how he might feel as a dad. Number one, finding out your wife is pregnant and then you're going to lose the baby, but also your wife could die. He went through so much. So we both were just struggling so much. I had my mom fly here from back home and she was there for practical help and support. But really, you know, I didn't know another relative or friend who had gone through this. And I didn't know anyone in my workplace who had gone through this. So I was completely alone. Of course, your family loves you and protects you and cares for you. But one thing that I've learned throughout the years is that people serve you in different ways. And sometimes, especially being an Asian, what your in-laws or parents or siblings can do is provide something practical. But what you want is to be nurtured. So I had to learn and really begin to process that people will try to support you in the ways that they can. But it was a lot of feeling let down because I didn't know who to talk to. Eventually, I found Instagram and tons of other women who became my support. But really, in those early days, during my first loss and second loss, I was really alone, really alone. Yeah. And then when you miscarried, like that must have been horrible. Did you feel like history was like repeating itself a bit? I felt like I couldn't. So with my second pregnancy, I just began bleeding. And I remember just freaking out and contacting my husband. And it's just everything sort of comes back. What's happening? We have to go back to the early pregnancy unit, the EPU. Many hospitals have them. And they're just such heartbreaking places. I mean, everyone is there praying that their baby is alive. It was very hard. Physically, what happens to your body, it's devastating. But I think what happens to you as a woman or however you identify, because I know not not only women are pregnant, uh, however you identify as a person, whatever pronouns you use. But in my case, it just was like everything I would touch will turn to ash. And that I, you know, especially if you, you lose a fallopian tube, you sort of don't feel like a woman. And 
so much of your identity as a South Asian is about being a you know a woman and then a wife and then a mother. It's who you are to in relation to other people. You know, if I was a tree, those branches seemed to be falling off. It was very difficult. Yeah, especially like miscarriage is something that's so common. Extremely. I think it's in all communities, but I think in our community, a lot of times everyone's like, oh, yeah, she miscarried. But people don't like talking about it. But the problem when people don't talk about it is the fact that when you do go through it, you feel like you you are the only one or that you can't find that support. Whilst if everyone was just a little bit more and it's personal, I'm not saying everyone needs to be open about it, but like just trying to open up a little bit like it just helps someone feel like you're not alone in that situation and obviously everyone grieves in certain ways and I believe that you are grieving for your baby you have all these like expectations and hopes and dreams established to it and all of a sudden it's gone and it's heartbreaking like genuinely heartbreaking I mean it's more than people think like it's being called from the hospital to say that you know the remains of your baby are there and is it okay if they cremate them and do you want to go to the service and do you want to speak to the chaplain people think stupid ignorant things to you like maybe something was wrong with it or if you say this prayer or do this and I am a spiritual person I do believe in a higher power but that was very difficult for me you know oh if I do this prayer or do this fast or something you know, I'll get pregnant and everything will be okay. You know, the reason that people in our community don't talk is number one, other people aren't talking. But number two, what you get in response is so painful. And it was in my, and I can only see for my situation, it was either like complete silence and I just would like be very honest and it would be too much for people or it would get really painful comments or feedback. Both of those things were just not going to work for me. You know, you asked me earlier how I was in my first pregnancy loss. Everything about me as a person, so many aspects of my personality totally changed. I used to work in a completely different field. I quit my job. I used to be extremely social, outgoing. Every weekend we had plans. I didn't leave the house for three months. Obviously, now I know that I had post-traumatic stress that was untreated and today is still being dealt with. But nobody tells you anything about miscarriage. Nobody tells you. But a lot of your values change. So the way you feel about yourself, I felt like such a failure, such a failure. You know, how depressed do you feel? I know many other women must have been in my shoes, but I remember telling my husband that he deserved a baby and that maybe he should be with somebody who could give him one. These are heartbreaking things to say to somebody who you've been with for many, many years. Nobody ever tells you these things about miscarriage. And I think that's what hurt the most. So in retrospect... Say if we were to turn back time and you were to go back to that situation where someone asked how you were, what kind of response did you want? The perfect response came from my brother. And that was not during my first loss or second, but around a later two. And he just said to me, he didn't know what the right thing was to say. And he didn't want to say something to hurt me, but he cared and he wanted to be there. And he may not have all the answers, but he was there. And I think if you have a friend or a sister or a colleague, please, if I can give any advice, don't worry about saying and doing the right thing. Just be present. Drop by with a a coffee. Talk to them about their baby because hiding their baby away, you know, and I've had friends that I've met through Instagram who've had a stillbirth or a pregnancy that had to be terminated for medical reasons. Their baby mattered. Talk to them about their baby. Does their baby have a name? Say their baby's name. That's what I would have appreciated. I don't expect anybody to know all the right things because it's such a hard situation. 
all somebody wants is for you to be there and to treat them with compassion. When people, and this is also people in my family who I love, just basically acted like nothing was happening, I think the biggest divides were created. And that's pain that I'm still working through. Don't do that to somebody who's had a miscarriage. And if they don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But off the bat, I think making sure that you just say, I'm here, I want to listen. Do you want to talk about it? How can I be there for you? That's the most important thing. Definitely. I completely agree. Sometimes the best thing is just an ear and a hug. Yeah. Especially because a lot of communities, Asian communities, and I don't know what other religions believe, but there's some stigma religiously about, you know, women who have had miscarriages that can't take part in certain rituals and stuff that traditionally women who had miscarriages wouldn't take part in, like parts of a baby shower, for example. And I remember my sister-in-law was having hers, and I thought, will I not be able to take part? Nobody in the end cut me out of the parts, but it's very common. Like, if you've had a miscarriage, you're not supposed to participate. And I remember just being terrified going, thinking, I'm the only person who can complete these rituals. But I've also had, at that time, two losses. Will I be included or not? It's wild to think about now. And that is very shocking. And it's a bit like a miscarriage isn't your fault. You didn't bring it upon yourself. Like it's just something that's happened. You can't control it. I think that's really horrible. Yeah, it is. So when you finally got pregnant with your child... What was that like? Because obviously by then you'd gone through four losses. How was that pregnancy for you? It was really hard. And I think that that doesn't even begin to describe the sort of lack of confidence I had in my body. Number one, if you've had repeat pregnancy loss or even one, you have a lack of confidence that this is going to happen. If you have infertility or any fertility treatments, again, you've got that added layer of stress. You don't feel like your body should be able to do the things that it's here on earth to do, right? That other people are able to do. So it was very hard. I mean, I had the high-risk pregnancy. I was on a lot of medication, everything from blood thinners to injectable progesterone, which is intramuscular injections in my back. It was a very challenging pregnancy, very hard for me to relax, a lot of panic trips to the hospital, worrying that have I felt my baby enough today? a lot of tears and very hard to feel hope. I think the further I got, like I didn't even tell family until like 16, 17 weeks, but anyone outside of just parents and siblings was 24 weeks, quite a long time to wait. So it was full of anxiety. Of course, there was a lot of love, a lot of joy, but we celebrated in our own way, which was, you know, very quiet. I did have a baby shower and that was really joyous, but I felt like if I celebrated too much, I'd have another loss. But coincidentally, when it came time for the birth, I wasn't afraid at all. So I spent the whole pregnancy terrified. And then the birth was brilliant. I mean, I had the best midwives who are very familiar with my situation. Um, They gave me great care. But up until that point, every time I would call my husband, his first worry, was I okay? Is everything okay? Even if I was just calling him out of the blue. And that's the impact it has on both people. Even my extended family, always very, don't want to get overexcited, but happy. Don't want to ask too many questions, but so worried. And then the silly things that I think moms of our generation say, like, don't run. Don't do that where you know that your body is okay if I got some exercise. But yeah, I think for anybody who's been in this situation, your role is changing. Your self-view is changing. And you have to do a lot of work on yourself as if you've had these experiences before you meet your baby. 
Wow. I guess it is that thing where you're constantly scared that history is going to repeat itself. Did you ever have this feeling like this isn't real or just worrying that anything bad can happen at any time? Constantly. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, every time I went to the toilet, I took a deep breath that when I wiped, there wouldn't be blood. Oh, good. Every single time, the entire pregnancy until I had my baby. And any friend that I have who's had loss has always been the same. So always anxious, constantly. It is, at the end of the day, like something quite traumatizing and you are going to constantly be anxious. Oh man, that's really sad. You know, with our community, sometimes people, when you do tell them that you're pregnant or whatever, they do end up asking very invasive questions. Or if they do hear off the grapevine that you lost a baby, again, they will ask very invasive questions that sometimes you just don't want to like respond to, right? I mean, definitely when I was pregnant, I got lots of comments. Uh, I had a friend ask at my own baby shower if we did IVF. Definitely, I would never consider asking anyone how their child was conceived. When we called family members to tell them I was pregnant, a relative on my husband's side probably didn't know I was listening. And of course, it's supposed to be such a joyous phone call. Said, oh, we thought something was wrong with you guys. So that's good news. So yeah, I've had definitely my fair share of stupid comments throughout the years. Even I think at a friend's wedding, I was holding two glasses of champagne and the groom's mother, very close family friend, looked at me straight at my stomach and said, do you have any good news? And just shortly before that, I had actually had a miscarriage, my second. And I just remember thinking, I'm holding two glasses of alcohol. What do you think? And you know what? Those comments only came from Asian people. (laughs) And it was very hard, very hard to digest. But I always tried to be unapologetic about everything. One, that's in my nature. Two, if I did speak about it to somebody, I was always straightforward and very honest. You know, I won't lie. I definitely wasn't talking to certain people about it. Definitely didn't open up to my mother-in-law or father-in-law about it. They don't know much about our history because we just don't have that sort of bond or relationship. And I think there's a limit to how much you can allow yourself or open that door to getting hurt. So I think I kept my expectations low. I found my support, which was... You know, just a few friends, because if I'm honest, when you go through repeat pregnancy loss, some of your friends, they just don't stick around for the ride. You lose a lot of friends. I mean, I've had friends whose children have died at birth and their friends just go thin. So horrible. That's the time you need them the most. It is. But I think what people are more worried about is what they're going to say to you because they find it awkward. Instead of thinking, wow, this person has really just endured a traumatic event. You don't have to be perfect to show somebody that you love them. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And I guess like that's an essence. It's also like creating support is so important. And it's why you kind of started your social media and your Instagram page as well. And I know that you said you wanted to share your story and help people. Did you ever think that it was going to grow or you're going to connect with all the amazing people that you have connected with? At first, it was just about thinking Okay, what is on Instagram? Is there anyone else who's going through the same thing as me? Because it was more of a desperation to find other people. With time in having this account, and I don't have loads and loads of followers, but I've got a good connection to the IVF community, loss community, and infertility community in the UK, and a good amount in the US as well. After a while, I started to have people message me because what my name was on the account said Mrs. Patel. So loads of people would message me and say, oh, I'm also Indian. I've had infertility or lost my baby last year. Or do you have any tips? Where did you go? Or how did you talk to your in-laws? And really the base of everything was everybody was scared. 
Nobody had anyone to talk to. Many of them felt a lot of shame, couldn't talk to anybody in their day-to-day life about these things. So it was less about setting up the account to help other people, but more to find a community because I didn't have one. I had a great husband, but he's not responsible for all my well-being. And I think that's important. Well, something you only learn with time in a marriage and a long-term relationship is you have to help your own happiness. You have to find it. I think if I didn't have social media, I don't know what position I'd be in today because those are the people who I have met, many of them in life. If I didn't have those people even today checking on me, rooting for me that I talk to every day, I don't know where I'd be. I definitely wouldn't be in the position that I am in now, which is doing better, thriving, getting help when I need it, and really working on myself and taking better care of myself. It's been a really big blessing. No, for sure. And I think that's something that's so true with social media, that there is a lot of positives in it. For example, creating a community. The one thing that I really learned from social media is the fact that people are very open and honest about sharing their stories if you create that energy for them to share their story. Sometimes people just want someone to listen to them. And I love the fact that I think especially within like South Asian communities, we've always been taught not to open up to people or not to be as vulnerable to random people off the internet, so to speak. And yeah, you're probably nodding because like, yes, I relate. But at the same time, like I would not have met half the people that I've met if I didn't open up. You would definitely not be in my podcast and I would never have heard your story. So I think I'm so grateful for social media in the sense it kind of does bring people together for sure. Very much so. I think it's got a lot of us through, especially when you have a baby and in lockdown and you may be struggling with postpartum mental health or emotional health. I mean, there's a huge crisis of postnatal depression in this country right now during lockdown. Instagram is a great resource to find other people to just talk to and, you know, for them to validate that it is okay and you are doing a great job as a mom or you're not alone with infertility or your baby mattered. If you had a very early miscarriage or a stillbirth or, you know, if your baby struggled to thrive, it's hard to talk about without getting emotional. But I think Instagram is an amazing thing. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, especially during lockdown, how has it been for you in terms of like postpartum? I'll be really honest. I had my baby just a few days before lockdown. So it has been really hard not having the sort of outlet of baby groups and classes. But again, the Instagram community that I've had has been great. My husband is amazing. It's hard for lots of people in this situation. The pandemic is hard for everyone. But if you are a new mom, especially a new mom who had a baby after loss, it is a very delicate and scary place to be. The pressure of being a new parent is outrageous. But when you've had a history of, you know, loss or depression or anxiety, everything becomes magnified as a new parent. And in this pandemic, unfortunately, the resources are really limited. And it is quite hard to get that sort of help. So I think my connections on social media have been what's got me through. But it's been quite hard really hard to be a new mom, but I'm very grateful, really grateful to the NHS for everything and doing their best to take care of us. Yeah, definitely. And I think postpartum and postnatal depression is such a common thing as well, which again is not spoken about like ever. I just wanted to know that for you, and I kind of want to know your take on this actually, is the fact that why do you think so much of this stuff is like swept under the carpet? I think it is fear of othering that you would become the other. I remember I had my baby and I was upset because the pandemic was happening and my mom couldn't come here. 
and I was crying to my mother-in-law the one and only time in this pregnancy that I have done so and she just looked at me and she said stop crying what she was trying to do was encourage me and say that in my day I had to do so much alone you've got help and it was like crying was the worst thing and you know you have to look at it as the generation before you was conditioned not to cry and conditioned to hide their trauma so how are they supposed to receive your trauma they don't know how so you know i really try and look at the root of who is speaking to me and why they're speaking to me she didn't have anyone to turn to when she had her kids she didn't have her mother here she didn't have social media she didn't go out she didn't work she just had to be quiet and get on with it and i think that's really sad that is really sad I think our community is really just focused on not being othered. They don't want anything to be ashamed of. It's about keeping up appearances. And I'm not about that. I think I like to tell the ugly truth because somebody has to do that in order for other people to feel they can do the same thing. And the ugly truth exists. Like there's only so much you can sweep under the carpet before you can tell that there's something happening. And I think just being honest about your story, it's a part of you. There's nothing to be ashamed of for sure. But now that you are a mama, what are some of the things that you realize whilst being a mom that no one ever told you about? I mean, there's always the obvious things about like sleep deprivation and things like that. But I think also the most important thing is how much work you need to do on yourself at the same time as bringing up a baby because you have changed completely. You're still the person that you were. Everything about your life has changed overnight and you have to figure out how to keep going and discover who you are as a person at the same time as feeding a baby, getting up at night with a baby, making sure your baby is gaining weight. You know, your laundry mountain, I'm staring at the laundry in front of me. It just never ends. I don't think I really thought about that. And also how inadequate you can feel as a new parent, especially as a mom. They don't say dad guilt for a reason. There isn't dad guilt. I mean, I'm sure there is, but the common perception is, you know, mother's always feeling guilty about something. Every mom I speak to, every time I speak to them, always feel like they're not doing enough or they're not enough or they could be doing better. I didn't realize how easy that is to identify with. thing is, everyone's just trying to do their best out here. I can't compare, but I guess it's that kind of thing where you naturally kind of do compare. Yeah. So one thing that I actually want to know is that Now that you have become a mom, what is one piece of advice that you would give to new moms out there? I have always felt like a mom since my first pregnancy because they were always my babies and they always will be, but I'm obviously a mom to a living child now. I think the one thing I would say to somebody who's become a new mom now is you have to take care of yourself. That eating and having a shower are not extravagant things to do in the day. They're basic self-care that you need to ask for help and there is no perfect mother, no book, no podcast, no social media personality. Nobody is going to be able to tell you how to be a great mom. You are a great mom to your baby. Your baby loves you and they don't give a fig about what you've bought for them or how you look that day. So just give yourself a break, be kind to yourself and take it one day at a time. You're going to have a day where everything is amazing and the next day you just can't get anything right and you're crying and the baby is crying and nothing's clean and you don't have a plan for dinner and that's okay. It's fine. It can wait. And also, I think the most important thing is cuddle your baby. Enjoy your baby. That time, you're never going to get it back. Your baby, especially in the first 
12 weeks after birth. They need time with you and you need time with them. Everything else can wait. I think that's really important to know. Oh, that's really, really cute. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your story and just being so like open and candid. Like I really, really appreciate it. So one little thing that I do before the end of every single episode is I kind of do like a little quick fire round, just something like really easy breezy, a little bit fun. Are you ready for some little lighthearted questions? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So the first question is, what is your favorite film? Ooh, The Green Mile. But next one is, did you have any weird pregnancy cravings? For some reason, I wanted to eat cucumbers. I ate a whole cucumber a day, which is not a big deal. But it was cucumbers with cottage cheese and balsamic vinegar. It had to be those three. And my husband had to go to the local Tesco Express every day for a cucumber. He must have looked like a weirdo going for a cucumber, the same guy. God, like now I know it was a disgusting combination, but I couldn't get enough of it. Every day I had to have it. So strange. Have you tried it again, like post-pregnancy? No. (laughs) Hell no, I'm not doing that again. Did it enough for almost nine months. Gross. What is one app on your phone that you can't live without? Instagram, definitely. Or Etsy, the Etsy app. I buy so much stuff on Etsy. What's been your favorite vacation? Uh, We went on safari. Uh, So we went to Tanzania. That was a stunning trip. Either there or Rome. I really love Rome. That's my happy place. But next one is, do you have a favorite quote? Yeah, um, I don't know if you know the comedian Hannah Gadsby, but she's got this quote, um, there's nothing stronger than a broken woman who has rebuilt herself. And I think about that a lot. I really, really love that. Thank you so much, Mrs. Patel, for coming on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really hope that you learned something new and you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Mrs. P for sharing her story on my podcast. And honestly, this is the reason I started my podcast in the first place, to be able to share remarkable stories by amazing people that might not ever get the platform. Let me know your thoughts. You can contact me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Pretty Personal. All of them have been linked in the episode description below. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And if you haven't, and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please rate it five stars and leave a review. I'll speak to you all next week. Take care. Bye.